spent most of the last two decades working on the coast, working in Silicon Valley, New York, um, and Europe as well. And so coming to Minnesota now, calling this home, really trying to build something that is truly rooted in our community. It's been very meaningful to see support from Minnesota investors, to be backing local entrepreneurs, and really just to be part of the home, the home community here. The Medical Alley podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. For over 20 years, the healthcare industry's largest companies have trusted MentorMate to guide their vision while designing and developing innovative digital products. Whether you're powering a medical device, overhauling your backend architecture, or reimagining your patient experience, MentorMate can help. The global team takes a personalized and in-depth approach to deliver secure solutions in all sectors of healthcare. With deep expertise in design, development, cloud, and software support, MentorMate helps healthcare clients administer state-of-the-art care through technology. Trusted guidance, global expertise, secure integration. MentorMate delivers digital transformation at scale. Learn more at MentorMate.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone out there in Medical Alley. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. We've got a great one today with an individual who is investing in the community, but in more ways than one. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Mary Grove, Managing Partner at Bread and Butter Ventures. Mary, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Good, good. Um, before we dive into you and the fund and what you're doing, I, I have to ask, Bread and Butter, what does the name mean and where did that name come from? Bread and Butter Ventures. So Bread and Butter has meaning to us on a few levels. One is we learned that the Bread and Butter State is one of the nicknames, many nicknames for our great state, and that hails back to 1901 at the Pan American Fair, where Minnesota was coined the Bread and Butter State as a nod to our excellence in dairy and grain production, of course. But beyond that, Bread and Butter, we invest in three core sectors. So in addition to our work in health tech and enterprise SaaS, food tech is our other core vertical. So there's that. And then lastly, every member of our team absolutely loves to eat and to cook. And so <laughs> we hope that it gets across the, uh, the great Minnesota hospitality. Oh, I love that. A lot of layers to the name and very apropos for what you're doing. Thank you. You started talking a little bit about the fund. Could you give uh, our listeners an intro of what is in the fund and what you're investing in and how do you think about the world? Absolutely. So Bread and Butter Ventures, we are a seed stage venture capital firm based here in Minnesota, investing all across the country. We can invest globally as well, but mainly do focus on the U.S. And our whole thesis is predicated on what we believe are the bread and butter sectors, if you will, of the modern economy. So specifically tackling how we feed ourselves, how we care for one another, and what the future of work looks like. So that maps, of course, to food tech, health tech, and enterprise SaaS. And we invest really at the seed stage, which to us means it's quite early. It means companies generally have a live working, at least MVP in market, with some utilization engagement data under belt. And then you know our, our role is to really partner closely with companies, leverage this notion of the Minnesota home field advantage. So again, partnering back into the ecosystem here, leveraging the corporate strength of the ecosystem and our team support to help them scale and grow. And so currently, 
we're investing out of our fund of three, third fund. So we've got now 57 companies in the portfolio all across the United States. And it's been an absolute delight to build it from here in Minnesota. Oh, right on. And kudos on the third fund, knowing how challenging the venture world is. That's an accomplishment in its own right. We appreciate it. Thank you. There's been a lot of great support from right here in our backyard, as well as from across the country, though. You know, my background, I spent most of the last two decades working on the coast, working in Silicon Valley, New York, um, in Europe as well. And so coming to Minnesota now, calling this home, really trying to build something that is truly rooted in our community. It's been very meaningful to see support from Minnesota investors, to be backing local entrepreneurs, and really just to be a part of the home, the home community here. Right on. And maybe expanding on that, when you first came into this community, you were involved with startups from day one. How have you seen the startup ecosystem develop in the last couple of years? I guess it, it's got to be more than three years now. Coming up on five years Oh, here. five years. All right. So it's been a pretty, pretty exciting evolution, right? And I had known a little bit about Minnesota, of course, before moving here. I'm a, I'm a proud Minnesotan by marriage. I joke, but my husband is a proud native of Northfield, and we've been building and working in this community from a distance for the last decade. But arriving here, you know, when I did... There was definitely something special and something very emerging up and coming about the ecosystem. But in just the last five years alone, the incredible growth of access to capital, so the number of venture firms who are actively investing here and some who are actively building their firms here has been really exciting to see. And then on the flip side, the number of new starts and new businesses being created and really beginning to get on the national radar of investors. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic to, you know, vastly accelerated access to capital in, in some exciting ways that we can get into. But ultimately, I would say Minnesota is not, it's not flyover country at all. And it's not perceived as such anymore, I would argue, you know, across the nation. Yeah. And, you know, the, the pandemic piece, it's probably been the, well, it, it's been the topic for the last couple of years. And you said something there about it. It changed access to capital. You also mentioned being open to investing in companies outside the U.S. How did the pandemic change access to capital and how you go and access capital as a venture capital fund? And then maybe if you would talk about it, if you were looking at a company outside the U.S., do you look at it differently than if you were looking at an venture that was already based in the U.S.? Absolutely. So on the macro environment and how, how has the pandemic changed access to capital, to venture capital specifically across the board? One, I think many funds, especially the large institutional funds headquartered on the coasts, have historically been reluctant to invest in companies beyond you know, the 50-mile radius where they can drive to the board meeting and, and meet in person. And I, I grew up in Silicon Valley from a career perspective, and I'm familiar with that. Uh, you know, that, that just has been the case historically. And what we saw with the pandemic, of course, was not just one or two or a few firms shifting to making investment decisions entirely remotely. That was what the whole industry did and was doing. And that goes for startups raising funds from venture capitalists, and that goes for venture funds raising from institutional investors, right? Everybody raising, deploying capital, making investment decisions, supporting companies or funds virtually. And that's become part of the new norm. I think we'll see a hybrid moving forward. However, that was exciting for and just being on the ground here in Minnesota, working with our companies who are based in the Midwest, we did see a tremendous amount of firms because there's nothing to lose by hopping on 
30-minute Zoom other than the cost of your time, which is really valuable. But it lowered that barrier to accessing that capital. And so we, we saw that, and I think that's absolutely here to stay because coastal funds have realized, wow, there are so many companies building built-to-last huge venture-backable businesses outside of my geography. And guess what? Those are capital-efficient markets where companies are priced at quite reasonable valuations where you don't have that inflation that you sometimes see in these large coastal hubs. And so I think the tide is turning and I'm, I'm very optimistic. Oh, very interesting. And it's really kind of democratized access to capital in some ways for both the startups and for the investors, which I know in your 2022 thesis for healthcare is something you talk quite a bit about the democratizing access to care. I'm wondering for the listeners' purposes, could you talk about what the healthcare thesis is for bread and butter ventures and how does that influence what sort of companies you look at? Yes. So Bread and Butter Ventures, each year we try to write a proactive thesis for each of our verticals, so food tech, health tech, enterprise SaaS. And it doesn't mean that we won't look at exciting companies outside that realm, but we try to very intentionally articulate what do we think are some of the biggest challenges and crises facing that sector and what are some of the solutions that might come out of them so that we're more focused and intentional in our proactive outreach. Reactively inbound, you know, we see across the team, across the sectors, we see about 1,500 deals a year from a volume perspective. And we invest in about, you know, an average of one new investment per month, so about 12 a year. So from a thesis perspective for digital health, we are squarely focused on software and tech-enabled hardware because we feel that seed funds of our stage and size were best capitalized to really focus on software. It's what we know best. It's what we can lean in to support and then within that, yes, Frank, the theme you touched on is democratizing access to care and quality care for everyone. And we've identified five key themes within that where we're trying to go proactively deep. So one is, you know, women's health very broadly. There are many areas of interest. We've made two investments in the realm of internal health, two in, in breast cancer-related work in that bucket to date. Behavioral health, mental health of all flavors is a deep area of interest for us right now, as well as this whole bucket of social determinants of health and how do we broaden to think about the other factors and circumstances that drive, you know, an overall individual's health and health outcomes. And then aging, elder care, aging in place, big emerging area of focus for bread and butter. And last and certainly not least is this notion of uh, AI, data, automation. How do we leverage tech to really create better efficiencies and better outcomes across the entire healthcare stack. Very interesting. I'm curious, you mentioned how the pandemic had changed capital access, both for investors and for startups. It seems like it also changed how companies are starting or how they're going to market in some areas as well, right? Telemedicine a couple of years ago was 1% of care, and now, even with the trough, we're still at about 20% of care. Do you think the pandemic has brought lasting changes that maybe some of those uh, theses that are more doable today, more productive, or allow us to approach them in different ways? Absolutely. We are very bullish on the fact that the pandemic really exposed certain vulnerabilities in everything from supply chain to the business models and how things are priced, who's subsidizing, who's paying for them, to the care delivery model. And we believe that you know investing in some of these solutions that had significant tailwinds during the pandemic. Yes, there's tailwinds there. These businesses are exploding. But 
those trends are here to stay. And as you noted with telehealth's a great example, right? That's not a new concept per se, but it, it quickly has become a household name, a method of care that is in many cases preferred, not just accepted. And so if I look at many of the companies in our portfolio, one good example is a local company here in Minnesota called River Health. And they're building a telehealth platform for primary care. It's $35 a month subscription, and it's really targeted towards hourly wage workers who wouldn't have you know, healthcare access today via a policy or people who have deductibles that are too high to ever hit. So at that price point, you know, maybe an employer would think of subsidizing partially or fully the cost of that. There is a mental health uh, benefit add-on that's really just a leading driver of adoption right now as well. And so that's an example of you know, an innovation, yes, telehealth, but it's here to stay because the population of people who could benefit from a solution like that, it hasn't gone away and it won't go away. Um, maternal health is another good example, right? Nest Collaborative is our, one of our companies in the portfolio. They, they're building a maternal health care platform, telehealth, beginning with lactation consulting. And to date, they've now scaled up to serve over 10,000 families, incredible outcomes uh, for moms and babies. And again, if you think about just the sheer ratio of international board-certified lactation consultants to births in the United States every year, that ratio, it doesn't work out to be seen in person. Telehealth helps us scale to reach moms and families in rural areas, remote areas, but also just the actual volume of patients who can be seen. And so we are really excited about a lot of these trends. Yeah, I'm constantly amazed at the speed of scale that some of these health software-focused health service companies can have. Healthcare is one of the few industries in the world that has had multiple decades of zero or even negative productivity growth. That is, in order to deliver more healthcare, we've actually had to add more labor than the previous unit of healthcare. When I hear you being able to describe, when I hear you describe being able to serve 10,000 families already, and that's a company that is in the grand scheme of things just getting started, it's incredible, and it makes me very hopeful that some of the big, seemingly intractable problems that we might actually address and do right by the people who have always needed the care, but were not served by the present system. Absolutely, Frank. And there's there's that side of the equation, right? Care delivery and accessibility, which is very exciting. And there's another opportunity to move the needle on the other side, which is software, systems, infrastructure, the, the side that, that patients might not actually see day to day, but could drive you know billions of dollars in efficiency if done correctly. And one example, another example in our bread and butter portfolio is another Minneapolis-based company called Itility Health. Itility, right? They're building prior authorization software to really help drive much greater efficiency in the process today. So, you know, if I'm a patient getting a specialty service, a surgery, an upcoming procedure, that, you know, their verification needs to occur if that's covered by my insurance policy. And that process today, amazingly, in the year 2022, is largely phone and fax and a very frustrating experience for patient, provider, and payer. And so could we build a rules engine that actually automates this entire stack? As a patient, you may think, of course, that that's being done, but it's actually there are huge inefficiencies today. So there's both the patient, the care delivery, and there's the nuts and bolts of the infrastructure that powers that, where I think there is just immense opportunity. Immense opportunity. 
I, I think one opportunity that doesn't get talked about enough is bringing the joy back to the practice of medicine. I, I've gone through this myself with prior authorization fund and the work that my doctors do. And I think they disliked it more than I did. And they have to do it over and over again. They want to be caring for patients. Nurses want to be caring for patients. And companies like Utility make healthcare more productive, but I think also put some of the joy back into the practice of care for the individuals, which is such a great company. I'm with you on that 100% as a patient as well, right? Of that knowing that your provider, hey, they're making their seventh call on your behalf for prior auth, but also they're making their seventh call on your behalf, right? So, so it is, again, back to that, that human connectedness, the joy, the driving a better experience that's measurable, Right, that we can track also ROI and, and better outcomes. And so what about you? How do you end up in venture capital? How do you end up where you are today? It's just an immense joy and such a privilege to be doing this work and to be investing specifically in health tech too. You know, I believe that there's never been a more exciting or more urgent time to be building in health tech or to be investing in it. And so my journey here, you know, began more than two decades ago. So I grew up in a very scrappy immigrant entrepreneur family. My parents are both immigrants from Thailand who built and ran small businesses together for over 35 years in healthcare. And so, you know, I grew up as uh, the kid under the desk in my dad's office. My mom was an operating room nurse who worked uh, the night shift so that she could spend more time with, with her kids. But just saw them build and scrap and that the grit, the tenacity, the failure, the success that came with being entrepreneurs gave me just the greatest foundation and appreciation, but also some exposure as well. And then fast forward, I went to college in the Bay Area uh, in Silicon Valley, and I never, I didn't study tech. I didn't intend to go into tech. And so it was a happy, serendipitous uh, stumble upon, if you will, where I ended up working at Google. My first job I got at Google, I thought I would spend one year there on my way to law school and ended up spending 15 incredible years as that first chapter. And so worked at Google beginning in 2004, and I worked on the IPO deal team when the company mm-hmm. went public. Absolutely fascinating experience. I really fell in love with the business, the mission, what was happening on the business and product side. So I was fortunate to move over to a team called New Business Development. We were essentially a catch-all for everything non-product and eng. So think about uh, business development, licensing tech, distribution partnerships, how to get Google products, new Google products in the hands of users, emerging market development. So that chapter took me to more than 40 countries with Google on the ground, learning and trying to help be a part of launching uh, things to more people in more markets. And that ended up leading to the foundation of what became the Google for Startups initiative for the company. So I started that team in 2011, spent six years building out what you know now continues on today, and the team has, has done an incredible job with it. But essentially is our umbrella for investing in both startups, but also startup ecosystems. And Google took a very different approach than other corporations might take, which was if we become that platform, more startups being created, coming online, jobs being created, Long-term leads to better, you know, more utilization of Google products, long-term business opportunity, but taking that platform play. And so I have been lucky to be studying and working on ecosystems, entrepreneurial ecosystems, working with early-stage startups, 
all around the world and really just become obsessed with this notion that you know, innovation is not just happening in Silicon Valley. It's happening in markets all across the U.S., all across the world, markets like Minnesota. As I began venture investing full-time, decided to really dive in fully. So I joined Steve Case and his team at Revolution. Steve is an extraordinary entrepreneur who was, of course, the founder of AOL, has his venture capital firm Revolution. And this was right after they just launched the first Rise of the Rest seed fund. And that's a, that was a $150 million fund dedicated to investing exclusively outside of Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston. And so loved that mission, thrilled about it, and also threw in a curveball of, of, what if I did that from Minnesota? So that's actually part of the origin story of moving to Minnesota. I mentioned earlier that my husband is from Minnesota. We have an enormous, probably 75-person family on his side here and in the Midwest generally. And so I was really intrigued both professionally by what was happening in markets between the coast, but also personally. And I had one-year-old twins at the time who are almost six, as they'll tell you, almost six. And I wanted to be a part of building something and helping, you know, advance the opportunity here in this community. So it's been an immense joy and uh, quite an adventure. Right on. And, and I have to say, from an outside perspective, an immense impact. There are a, a growing group of people, yourself included, who that mindset that you described Doodle had of not just as a business, but for the ecosystem, I think it's finally paying off. We're seeing the flywheel spin faster with more companies starting, more capital coming in, more employment being creative, created. The payoff seems to be finally there. I'd be curious for our listenership who knows a lot about the healthcare community that's here, but as you alluded to, bread and butter, invest in more than healthcare. Could you give our listeners a sense of the broader, the, the tech and food ecosystem that you see here, or even nationally, as well as how that's developing? Yes. So one of the things that, that got me so excited, so to just, I guess, continue that thread of the story. So after investing for a couple of years with Revolution, which was an amazing platform and experience, I had hit my two-year anniversary mark of being in Minnesota as well. And really, Frank, I had just become completely enamored by this notion that there's this huge, immense resource and opportunity here that really isn't as widely known outside of our state as it could be which is the Fortune 500 backbone and large company backbone that exists here. Nobody is leveraging at scale, I I thought, from a venture perspective. And that could be immensely powerful, having seen and worked with a lot of communities outside of Minnesota. And so I ended up teaming up with Brett Broll, who is a super deep expert in food and ag tech, and then Stephanie Rich, who's our head of platform. She's just a wonderful entrepreneur, operator, and also journalists by background, to go all in and help build Bread and Butter Ventures together. And so, you know, with with me coming into the mix, we added digital health as a core focus. We added enterprise SaaS to round out the food tech focus that Brett had, had always been investing in. And it's just the three sectors are immensely complementary, too. And so some of the, the data points that make this such an exciting ecosystem. So one... We are absolutely headquarters economy here in Minnesota, right? It's it's fourteen or eighteen Fortune five hundred companies, the highest number of Fortune five hundred companies per capita in the nation. 
our team has partnerships with 17 Fortune 500 and large corporations to help back the bread and butter thesis. And we can, you know, talk more about how that materializes in really exciting ways. But the headquarters economy is powerful. Uh, Second, we have large companies in general, right? 57 companies based in Minnesota due north of a billion dollars in annual revenue. We are rocking and rolling here and the opportunity to build a bridge, a more permeable membrane between these titans of industry, the emerging tech startups in their verticals. Wow. If you're a food entrepreneur building in food tech and ag tech, we specifically invest in software and tech-enabled hardware within food tech. So think supply chain, manufacturing, distribution, robotics, on-farm, future food retail, thinking about this is home to Cargill, to Ecolab, General Mills, Schwann's, Hormel, right? And whenever I share this description outside of our state, people light up, but really it's being able to leverage that to understand what are the trends that are coming down the pike in these industries? How can we help them partner with emerging startups? Because that desire is certainly there in a voracious way. It's about just building that, again, that connectivity and then enterprise software as our third category, every large company I described, right, has need for enterprise software, whether they're here or not. And so I think a lot when I, in my investing in that vertical about the future of work, the future of workforce development, Brett has been going super deep on automation, manufacturing, and the future of some of those verticals. And so, so many examples of how these, these thesis areas actually do intersect as well. So it's not... Um, it's very much mapped both to our team's investment background and our expertise, but equally important, again, mapping back to our location in Minnesota. You mentioned the future of work a couple of times. I think it's a topic that politically, professionally, personally, for almost everyone, it's on our minds. What do you think? What, what is the future of work? The future of work, you know, there's so many companies running towards different facets of this. I think the future of work we look at it in many different ways. One is the actual workforce and talent. How do we make sure that there's an environment that's inclusive for all that has the opportunity to upskill? So one of our investments is a company, and it's actually a company based in Israel, speaking of investments outside the U.S., called Wizco, W-I-Z-C-O. And they're trying to help train the new generation of workforce. And so they've got, they use AI and automation to help build software that helps prep people for interviews Right? It sounds um, very straightforward, but there's, that, there's so many ways you can leverage technology to refine and create efficiencies there. There's a number of exciting partnerships they have uh, set to roll out. They work with universities, but many other types of partners to help people become ready, workforce ready. And then on the other side, we think about employee retention, happiness, productivity. Right, and We have an investment in a company called Kahila which is based in Sun Valley, Idaho. Kahila is from the Hebrew word for community. They're building an enterprise SaaS platform for female leadership development in corporate America. So think about at a low price point, more analogous to a Zoom license for an employee, getting robust access to a platform that helps your you know, women in your workplace upskill, find community, retain, their stats are through the roof in terms of retention and engagement. And again, to that question of breaking down barriers, historically at large companies, you often have programs for the senior most women where, you know, 25 or 30 women are hand-plucked for a 
a fabulous in-person experience. It's a retreat, but imagine every woman in your workforce, whether it's the hire who started yesterday, the entry-level hire, all the way to the C-suite, could have access to this. And in today's environment, we talk about the first the great resignation, the great reshuffle, mental health and employee burnout. If there was a scalable SaaS platform that could meaningfully move the needle, solutions like that that are really getting us excited. Again, that topic of scalability, and it also sounds like personalization, very impactful. I, I know we're coming up on time, so a, a last question I'll ask you. Are there things you're not seeing that if you could put it out there, you go, I want to see X. Is it different markets, different technologies, different founders? What aren't you seeing today? It's a great question. I think, you know, back to back to the thesis areas and those those buckets of focus, I would encourage, you know, we'd love to meet companies, first of all. So each member of our team does open office hours every week. You can book them on our website, brandandbutterventures.com. But truly, we've met some phenomenal companies which have led to direct investments through that channel. But if you're building in one of those areas, so women's health, elder care, aging, aging in place, social determinants of health, behavioral health, AI, data, automation, you know, we'd love to hear from you. We've been looking a lot at um, solutions that are building for rural and remote patients lately. You know, remote patient monitoring, fertility is a general bucket. It's been super interesting. That social determinants of health is a very large um, blue sky opportunity. So. There's that for sure. And then in terms of what types of founders, one of our goals at Bread and Butter Ventures, truly, especially in Minnesota, we want to be the front door to the venture ecosystem here, meaning whether we are a fit to invest in your company directly or if we can help be a conduit, a a connective tissue in to one of the corporations we partner with, to another venture firm. It takes a community to make this happen. And I'm constantly infuriated when I see the statistics of the amount of funding going to female founders, for example, going to black founders, to underrepresented minority founders in general, and so much of that. And I can tell you firsthand experience, it's not about lack of talent. It is because venture capital historically is a closed network ecosystem. And what can we do differently? Simple things like the office hours I mentioned to you pipeline is just deeply filled with talented female founders and founders who are people of color. And that is one, but one of many important measures we we could talk all day about. But that leads you directly to a broader pipeline and then broader, more diverse investment decisions. And so I'll leave you with a couple of stats. Within the bread and butter portfolio, we're very proud that 54% of our companies are led by female founders. And 69% of our companies are led by at least one person who's a founder of color. And there are many reasons why I think we all have an imperative role to be a part of building a more inclusive economy, investing in diverse teams that can lead dramatically to better outcomes. And so we're just thrilled to play our part in it, but really grateful for this opportunity, Frank, and to everyone in the ecosystem for welcoming um, me personally and, and more importantly, the fund and our work into the community here. Oh, thank you. You know, you, Brett, and Stephanie, I think have set a new standard for what being a good venture fund and a good community partner can mean. So thank you. And thank you for taking some time to chat with us today and being a part of the community. That means a lot to us. Thank you so much, Frank. 
And folks, that's another episode of the Medical Alley Podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, make sure to go to medicalalleypodcast.org, or you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Until next time, have a great day.